0: Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary to make sure you're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, ready to focus and concentrate on the study of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to fellowship around the teaching of your word, to be encouraged, to be strengthened by the doctrines that we study, to recognize that you are the God of history, that you have a plan and a purpose in history and you have a plan and a purpose for each of our lives. And Father, we thank you that we have your word to inform us of these things and that we have your word to uh, encourage and strengthen us on a day-by-day basis. Father, we continue to pray for our nation during this time of war against the terrorism, during this time when there are so many who would seek to do us harm. There are so many evildoers in the world who would love to destroy the foundations of Western civilization. We know that this is all part of the angelic conflict, and this is just a manifestation in our generation of the angelic conflict and the ongoing war against the truth for a dis- any attempt to destroy the U.S. is something that would create tr- tremendous trauma for missions as well as f- in relationship to our support for Israel. Father, we also pray for uh, Dan Ingram this, this week as he continues his missions trip down in Brazil. Pray that you would uh, give him opportunities to make the gospel clear down there. Now, Father, for us, we pray that you would just challenge us with the things that we study and that we would be responsive to these things we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Revelation 1. First three verses are the prologue to Revelation, and we've been working through those for the last two or three weeks and hitting various topics and various issues in those first three chapters. Now, last time I talked about some facets of Revelation two, our verse 2, 1, verse 2, in relation to the authorship of this uh, Apocalypse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, was revealed by Jesus Christ to, we see at the end of verse 1, to his slave, I want to translate doulos as slave rather than servant. Servant implies certain uh, things that I don't like that uh, you don't have in the word slave. For example, a servant can say, oh, I'm not going to work for you anymore, I'm out of here, and go work for somebody else. And see, as a slave, we can't do that. We are slaves of righteousness, slaves of Christ positionally. That is our position. And this, He is the one who has authority over our lives. So I have emphasized that. But Jesus Christ uses an angel to communicate this to His slave John. Both Jesus Christ and the angel are involved in the communication of the revelation. So this is the Apostle John, as we saw last time, and one of the things I emphasized was that the vocabulary of verse 2 is vocabulary that is commonly found in the Gospel of John. Now, as I went through this, I noticed on the slide and in my notes, I had a, a typo. I have no clue how I got there, so it would just be the demon in the computer. And for, for that reason, I avoided doing a grammatical analysis of verse 2, which is important. I knew what I had in my notes somehow got garbled, so we're going to go back and just hit a couple of high points in the syntax of Revelation 2 because it's important to understand, and it also leads will be a good review, bring us up to where we are in verse, in verse 3 and the conclusion to this, to this prologue. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, that is Jesus Christ, to show. The word there is numi. We need to come back to that again and again. It is a word that is really related not to verbal revelation, but it is a a visual word. That's what this revelation is. John sees this, as as we note at the end of verse 2, all the things that he saw. So it is, first of all, a visual thing. John is seeing these visions. He is seeing the things that will take place, and then he writes them down under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. But unlike the epistles, unlike some of the other writings in Scripture where under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, the author is sitting down and writing, John is actually going to go through this vision process where he sees, just like sitting down, Flipping on the television and plugging a DVD into your into your player and watching a movie. This is and then writing down what you have seen. This is what is is what we have here. It's a disclosure, a revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to exhibit to his slaves. Things which must quickly take place. Once they begin, they'll take place in rapid succession. And he communicated it by sending his angel to his slave John. Now we come to verse 2. John is described as the one who testified to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Last time I pointed out that this word is, this verse is freighted with legal terminology. The background image here is of a courtroom. The key word here is this word martyreo in the verb form and also martyria, the noun form for testimony, indicates a someone who's a legal witness in court who testifies or provides a legal testimony. He is a legal witness. So there is, there is a uh, seriousness to this word. This indicates that this is not something frivolous, but this is like a legal testimony in a courtroom. And, of course, we have as the backdrop to the Scriptures the uh, appeal trial of Satan. Satan is appealing his verdict to God. And so much of Scripture is cast within legal terminology, the concept of justification, the concept of condemnation. All of these are legal legal concepts We in our society, in our subjective 20th century society. We want to make everything relational. But the Scriptures are not talking about our relationship to God first and foremost. First they talk about a legal problem that has to be taken care of, and that is that every individual is born under the condemnation, the legal condemnation of sin, legal guilt, because of Adam's original sin. And that legal guilt has to be uh, taken care of, and it's taken care of when Jesus Christ pays the penalty on the cross for our sin, so all of this is within the context of, uh, of a courtroom. You also have other imagery. Jesus Christ is our advocate right now. It's legal terminology. Satan is the prosecutor. He is the one who brings charges against us. He is the adversary. That's what Satan means: is the adversary. So all of this, the background for all of this terminology, is legal. Of course, I pointed out last time that John uses this throughout the Gospel of John in terms of presenting a witness. Now, as I was initially looking at this, I thought, because this is an aorist tense, martyreo is an aorist active indicative. Last week, that's where we had the typo. We had a subjunctive there. I have no clue how that got in there. This is the aorist active uh, indicative, third person singular of martyreo. Now, the aorist tense... The aorist tense indicates past action. And as I've looked at this first blush, I thought, well, this must be referring to John's previous testimony in the Gospel of John where he gave witness to Jesus as the logos of God and the Word of God as well as the testimony of Jesus Christ at the first advent. But as we got into our study last time we saw that the word of God here is not used as a title for Jesus Christ except one time and that comes later on in Revelation. And what we have to, one principle of, of in, interpretation that we must realize is you can't interpret a passage an earlier passage in light of one that comes later in time. You can't make that, that mistake because whoever reads something initially has to interpret it within that the framework available at that time. You can't interpret a passage in Revelation 1 on the basis of one usage later on in, in Revelation where the term Word of God is applied as a title. It's a different context. So the Word of God here has to do with the message from God. So the first thing we note is that it's an it's an aorist tense, but we have to define that what kind of aorist tense it is. And this is an epistolary aorist. Even though this is not an epistle, it has certain, uh, certain aspects related to an epistle. For example, you have a salutation, which we'll get to next week, in John, chapter four, uh, John 1, 4, excuse me, Revelation 1, 4 where John to the seven churches which are in Asia says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That is a, a standard salutation similar to what you'll find in a Pauline or Johannine epistle, grace to you and peace. So it has certain elements of, um, of, an, epist- uh, of an epistolary genre related to it. And in an epistolary heiress, the writer who is writing in present time, Will use a past tense verb because by the time the reader reads what he has written, his writing will have already taken place. Understand? See, if I write a letter to you, I could say I am writing to you, but by the time you get it, depending on how the postal service works, and you know, a week or two weeks or a month. One time, I had a, somebody sent me a Christmas card from Houston in postmarked in November, and it got. Here in July. So that's just, don't you love bureaucracy? So an epistolary heiress is when you say, I am writing, but because you know that by the time the reader reads it, the the act of writing will have been in the past, you use a past tense verb, and it's usually related to a a word such as writing or testimony or speaking, some kind of verb like that. So this is an epistolary aorist. that John is talking about what is happening in his present time as he is witnessing this revelation. But by the time he has it written down, it will have occurred in the past tense. So from the perspective of his readers, it will have been in the past. So he uses the past tense form, who testify to the word of God. Now, what really breaks this open is you you have to understand the connection between these next two phrases. You have two phrases, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The word of God and the testimony of Jesus. What is the relationship between these two things? The connection is that word and, which is the, in the Greek is the conjunction kai, K-A-I. And we have to analyze that. And this is really the key to understanding what's going on in verse 2. Is he talking about two different things? For example, you could say, I have an apple and an orange. You're talking about two different things. Or you could say, I have an apple, uh, even a red delicious. See, in English we use that word even, which is different from and. But in Greek, the word chi can have that ascensive use, where the second word in the of the two is, Really explains and expands on the first one, and this is the case that we have here. You have the phrase "the word of God," tan lagan which is a which is a word that the τοῦτο is a is a uh, is a genitive of source. It's the word from God, and the word from God refers to any declaration or disclosure that comes from God. And the testimony of Jesus Christ is not a testimony that comes from Jesus, although that could be the sense. It's more uh, accurately described as a subjective genitive. And in that case, because as we saw earlier, uh, the word testified, the verb, is, is the verb form uh, martyreo, which is related to the noun form martyria for testimony. And a testimony is a verb of action. So when we have a... I mean, it's a a verb, testified. Testimony is a noun of action. So when you have a noun of action followed by a genitive, it can be either subjective or, or objective genitive. An objective genitive would be the testimony about Jesus Christ. But as we've already seen in our analysis of the first verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ is not the revelation about Jesus Christ, but it's Jesus Christ' revelation. It is what He is revealing. And we have the same thing here. This is the word from God and the testimony that born by Jesus, the testimony given by Jesus. It is Jesus' testimony. And so this reinforces, what has gone on and what has been said in the first verse. In the first verse, we saw that this is Jesus Christ's revelation to John, which God gave him. So verse 2 reiterates this, that John is the one who is going to testify to this message from God, which is Jesus' testimony. And the way we know it, it that this phraseology is talking about the same thing and the testimony of Jesus is, is Jesus' testimony about this message from God, this disclosure, this revelation, this apocalypsis mentioned in verse 1, is this last phrase, this last phrase, which literally should be to all that he saw. In the In some Bibles it says even, the New American Standard I think says even to all that he saw, and the even you'll notice is in parenthesis or is in italics and you should just scratch it out because that's putting the even in the wrong sense it should literally be translated who testified to the word of god even the testimony of jesus christ and then to all that he saw so the main verb goes back to the it's not the finite verb but the main verbal idea here is the participle testified he testified to all that he saw So he's not talking about his testimony previously in the Gospel of John. It's talking about all that he saw in this revelation. So Revelation 1-2, John is saying that I am giving a legal testimony about this message, this disclosure from God, which is Jesus Christ's testimony. That ties us right back to the revelation of verse, verse 1, and it's, and I am giving a testimony to all that he saw. Now this phrase, all that he saw, translates the Greek "hasas," which is a correlative pronoun meaning as much as or as many as. So for ease in translation, rather than saying to as much as he saw, that's all that he saw. So we just simplify it. He is giving his testimony to everything that God disclosed to him. So unlike uh, Daniel, who did not disclose everything that had been revealed to him, John is disclosing everything that has been revealed. And of course, this relates to the doctrine of sufficiency, which I covered a few weeks ago, that the Bible has, tells us everything. And with the uh, apocalypse, the canon of Scripture is completed so that we now have a sufficient revelation. We're told everything we need to know about future events prophecy is brought to a close here we have all the information we need to be able to understand uh, god's plan for god's plan purposes in the future now that doesn't mean we're told everything that we want to know see we have all kinds of uh curiosity we want to know who the antichrist is we want to know what these countries are we want to identify all of these things and that will become apparent in the proper time but we don't need to know that now but even now in this church age, we need to know what's in this prophecy. We need to understand all that prophecy teaches. And I get a little frustrated sometimes when I hear about some pastors who don't want to teach prophecy. Oh, the only reason people come out is because they want to be stimulated. They want to hear all of the uh, uh, speculations about what's going on in the Middle East and and what's going on in, in, uh, with the UN and the EU and all of these things. And... While it is true that some prophecy is taught that way, and while it is very true that a lot of people come to teaching on Daniel or Revelation simply because they want to be stimulated by all of that sort of conspiracy type of thinking and trying to figure out where we are today and what's happening in the world today, that is not the biblical approach. The biblical approach is you need to know this information. It's important to understand where things are going because of what is happening in your life today few weeks ago, I was was traveling, went out to California, and uh, one night we went out to eat at a restaurant, and as we went, came into the restaurant, walked into the restaurant, the dessert tray was sitting right there on the right, right behind the cashier. And so as you were waiting for your table, you had an opportunity to look over this incredible dessert tray. Now, That is an important principle. See, you always have to begin with the end in mind. So you don't want to sit down and have a huge meal when there's this wonderful dessert that you want to eat at the end. Well, the same thing is true in your Christian life. You need to live today with the end in mind. And that's the thrust here of the prologue of Revelation, is we need to understand where history is going where the plan of God is going, because when you understand where things are going, it's going to change the way you live today. It will transform the significance of events today. And we need to learn to live today in the light of eternity. So John is going to give a testimony to all that he saw, He's going to give a witness to that, and this is the testimony of Jesus Christ. And it's all that he saw, and this is the Greek word adon, which is the aorist active indicative. And here it's just a uh, our constative aorist, which describes uh, everything that happened in the past, summarizes it without respect to its beginning, progress, or, or ending. The word adon emphasizes the visual again. He this is what he saw this is what was exhibited Dagnumi verse 1 so now he's going to tell us what he saw Then we come to the third verse Third verse reads blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it why for the time is near See, this is the warning. This is the urgency here. Now, just because Jesus has not come back for 2,000 years doesn't change the sense of urgency here. The time is near. These things will take place, and when they take place, they'll take place quickly, and the culmination is going to be these various judgments, evaluation. And the same is true for the believer. So I want to exegete the passage, and then we want to look at some uh, significant implications from this one particular verse. The concept of blessing is the Greek word makarios, meaning to be happy, tranquil, content, or privileged. It has the idea predominantly of being a favored recipient of divine grace. We have been favored with divine grace because we have this knowledge, because we have this information. And John says that we are blessed... If we have this now there's three categories mentioned here. Incidentally this is the first of seven blessings or beatitudes in Revelation. Revelation one three is the first, Revelation fourteen thirteen the second, Revelation sixteen fifteen the third, Revelation nineteen nine the fourth, twenty uh let me see Revelation one three, fourteen thirteen, sixteen fifteen is the third, nineteen nine. Nine, the fifth is twenty six, the sixth is twenty two seven, and the seventh is twenty two fourteen. We are special recipients of divine grace by having this information. Not so you can go out and figure out who the Antichrist is, and not so you can go out and figure out who the ten toes of, of uh, Daniel's image are, the ten nations in the revived Roman Empire but because this is going to change your understanding of how you're living the Christian life today. It's going to impact your understanding of divine judgment, the personal work of Christ, and the character of God, all of which has an impact on how we live the Christian life today. So we're told blessed is he who reads. This is the first key statement, the one who reads. It is a... Present active participle, it has an article with it which indicates it is used as a substantive, the one who reads. But it is a nominative masculine singular, so it is talking about an individual. The other two participles, hear the words and heed the things, are plural, so they refer to a group of people. But this relates to the one who reads, and the word is anagonosco. A-N-A-G-I-N-O-S-K-O, Gonosco. And it is not simply sitting down and reading in private, but it is reading something publicly. Remember, this was an age when people didn't have libraries. They didn't have a lot of books at home. They might have one scroll here or a scroll there. Some folks might have a copy of the Scripture. But generally, most people did not have a copy of the, of the Scripture. The only way they would learn it is that the pastor would stand in the pulpit and read it like a letter. The pastor of of, uh, Colossians would receive this epistle from Paul and he would stand and he would read it to the congregation. Then he would come back and he would expound upon it. This is how you would learn the Scripture. You would have to listen intently. You would have to concentrate. You just couldn't come. And, uh, well, I can read this over when I get home because you couldn't. The only way you would get the Word of God in your soul is to concentrate on its public reading and to learn it and to memorize it uh, in the process. So it called for a great deal of concentration. But the service was based on the public reading of Scripture. So for us, this is the public teaching of Revelation. So blessed is he who reads. This refers to the pastor who exegetes and teaches the book of Revelation to the congregation. So the blessing is for he who reads, on the one hand, and secondly, to those who hear. This is the Greek word akouo, again, a present active participle, but it's a nominative masculine plural. And it means not simply to listen in the sense of having your auditory senses stimulated, but it means to uh, listen intently, to concentrate, to, to study, to, to respond. If we want to uh, understand the use of akua, we have to go to James chapter 2. We'll go there in a second. Let's finish the phrase. Those who hear what? Those who hear the words of this prophecy. And here we have the Greek logos in the plural. And this refers to the message. This ties us directly back. Verse 2, the words of this prophecy are the word of God. Remember this, the words of this prophecy tie us directly back to the previous verse where uh, where John identifies this as the word of God. I remember some years ago when I was uh, advancing my education, I had already graduated from seminary and was pastoring, and I thought that I would go back and get another degree Take the time I had the opportunity to go to the University of St. Thomas to work on a degree in um, uh, philosophy, but i didn't have any undergraduate any undergraduate courses in philosophy. I had several courses in apologetics and seminary and at St. Thomas, they had a serious philosophy uh, degree, and they wanted you to go back and take uh, have a minimum of of 16 hours of undergraduate philosophy. So I had to go back, after already having a master's in seminary, I had to go back and take four undergraduate courses in philosophy. And in the process, I had to fill up some time because I had to drive into Houston. I lived about 40 or 50 miles away, and I'd have to drive into Houston. Sometimes classes weren't convenient. You'd have a morning class and an afternoon class with two or three hours to kill in between. So there was a course that they were offering the undergraduates on Protestant Evangelical theology. And I thought, well, this sounds interesting, so I'll sign up for this class. So I went in, and the guy who was teaching it was a guy who was a professor from the University of Houston. And I knew right then we were going to be in trouble. And as we were going through through uh, Protestant theology, the first area they studied was on the Bible. And he made the statement that nowhere in the Scripture does the Bible call itself the Word of God. That's just a fundamentalist interpretation. And I thought, now, how am I going to refute that? Now, I kept very quiet during class. So I, didn't go, I didn't raise my hand and challenge everything that he said. I frequently had discussions with him in private after class, but uh, I didn't do it in class. But this is one of those passages, and that's a normal standard uh, liberal and neo-Orthodox approach to the the, the biblical position of inerrancy and infallibility. They'll say, well, nowhere does the Bible call itself the Word of God. And yet this is a specific place where John calls what he is writing here the Word of God. It is not just the Word about God, it is the Word from God. So the second participle of Revelation 1-3 emphasizes the hearer, the one who's concentrating, the person who's studying, the person who's taking notes and focusing on the words of this prophecy. Individual, and again, this uh, reinforces the idea of verbal plenary inspiration, that we believe that every word is inspired by God, not just the ideas Not just some of the words, but all of the words are equally inspired. The concept of verbal inspiration emphasizes the words. The term plenary inspiration emphasizes the totality that each and every word is equally breathed out by God. Now John says this, that blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. And then he says, and those who heed... The things that are written in it. This is the uh, present active participle tereo. It's a masculine nominative plural. So again, it's those who hear. So it's the idea of one person reading and a plural, a plurality of people are hearing, concentrating on what is being taught. And now comes application. They are going to heed. They're from tereo, meaning to keep, to observe, to apply, and to put into practice. It's not just an academic exercise of learning what Revelation says, but there are things here that we're going to have to apply into our life. Now, this is a concept that is parallel to James chapter 2, or actually James chapter 1. You can turn over in your Bibles to James 1, uh, 22, where James says, But prove Gennesthi, it is the aorist, uh, er, Passive, it's actually a deponent verb with an active meaning. Uh, Aorist passive imperative of genomai, meaning to be something that you're not, to become something that you're not, but become doers of the word. Now, the word there that's an aorist infinitive, an aorist active infinitive of poieo, means to be a, a doer, but it means to apply the word. This is not talking about Christian service. This is talking about application of what you learn. So that if you learn that you are to utilize a faith-rest drill and to trust God when you're in times of crisis or pressure, then that's what you do. Is you go home and the next time something goes wrong, instead of getting upset, angry, worry, anxious, you apply uh, a, a, a promise. You claim a promise. So prove yourselves or become, but you yourselves are to become appliers of the word. That is the message. "...that you have heard, and not merely hearers who delude themselves." And the word therefore, for hearers is the same uh, root word we have here, akuo. You don't want to simply be those who fill up their doctrinal notebooks with all kinds of information. You want it in your soul so that you are applying it. It's changing the way you think, changing the way you live, changing the way you relate to your husbands and to your wives and to your children and to your employers, and to your employees, and to the government. It's going to have an impact on the way you think, and the way you act, and the way you live, and the way you talk. But become uh, appliers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And then in verse 23, James explains this, for if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, that is, if you're just somebody who comes to class a lot. You write down a lot of notes, but it doesn't change your thinking or your life. Not an applier. He is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. So most of you look to me as if you got up this morning and you did look in the mirror. You realized, uh, the ladies did at least. I don't think any men realize they didn't have any makeup on and put makeup on. Ladies realized they didn't have any makeup on. They might have been a little bleary eyed or puffy eyed and they handled that and they combed their hair. The men combed their hair. Most of you looked like you shaved and and uh you so you looked in the mirror, you realized that your clothes needed to match and hopefully you didn't get dressed in the dark and your socks match and they're the right color. So you understand the principle of looking in a mirror and applying it to your life, that which you learn from the mirror. And the Word of God is a mirror. You hold it up and it reflects back to you the way reality is and the way you and I are. And it it reveals a lot of things about us that we don't like. That's why people try to reinterpret the Scriptures. They don't like what it says about them. So the Bible is going to expose the flaws and the failures in our life. And then we have to exercise our volition and do something about it. And we have to make that change. Verse 25, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, and here we have the uh, Greek verb uh, parakoupso, kup- uh, which has to do with, intently. this isn't blepo, which is just a brief, quick look. This is uh, the idea of concentrating at something. This is the idea inherent in uh it's used in parallelism here for the the hearer who does. It's the idea that that uh, John has in Revelation one three is to concentrate on the teaching of the Word. The one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by, that is, does what it says, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, that is someone who applies effectively that which You know, the principles of doctrine that they've learned in the Word. This man will be what? Blessed in what he does. My, doesn't that relate to what John has just said back in Revelation 1, 3? Blessed is he who reads and those who hear with concentration the words of the prophecy and heed or put into practice or obey. The things that are written in it. And then he says, for the time is near. That is the explanation. It's the Greek word gar, translated for, which is an explanation. Why is it important to read and hear and heed the words of this prophecy? It's because the time is near. This is our motivation. Jesus could come back tomorrow if He doesn't come back tomorrow, we could die tomorrow. You don't know. The time is near. This adds an element of urgency to it. It's the Greek word ingus, translated near, which has the idea of either immediacy, which would relate to the idea of the uh, imminence of the Lord's coming. It could happen at any time. We don't know when it will be, but the time is near. It is It is imminent. Now, as we get into that particular verse, there's some things that are interesting in Revelation 1 3 that I want you to point want to point out to you. There is embedded in Revelation 1 1 through 3 an inherent concept of communication. An inherent concept of communication which will help us to define both a, a doctrine of language as well as a doctrine of hermeneutics or interpretation. For example, in the first verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ uses the word apocalyptus for revelation. It is that which is unveiled or disclosed. It's not meant to be hidden. It's meant to be revealed, to be God isn't hiding something. When, For example, in the parables, in Matthew 13, when Jesus began to speak in parables, the disciples said, why are you suddenly speaking in parables and not in the open? And he said, because they rejected him, essentially. That was the thrust. So Jesus spoke in parables in a way to sort of cloak what he was teaching, to speak to his disciples in sort of a, a code language, spiritual truth that they would understand but the unbelievers around would not easily pick up on and would not understand but that's not what we have here what we have here is a disclosure an unveiling so it has the idea that this is written to be understood and not something to be guessed at not something where in every generation you come up with a different idea of what this means and that's what it means for your generation this is a uh, something that is evident in a an int- way of interpreting revelation today called the idealistic school, and that this has meaning for every generation, and it differs from generation to generation. There are not too many people who espouse an idealistic view, but there are many who do. This is meant to be understood. There are a lot of people who read revelation oh, I just don 't understand it Well, it is written to be understood. It's written to show something. We have the word numi there. God gave him to show his servants. God the Father gave this to Jesus Christ so that certain information could be disclosed to us. In other words, its purpose is to be understood. God is omnipotent. God is capable of communicating to us in a way that can be understood. The purpose here is that it is not guesswork. Third, he communicates it, uh, semino. He, in the second part of verse 1, he, uh, it's translated in the New King James, he sent and signified it by his angel. And that word signified is the Greek word semino related to the uh, noun for signs, but it means to communicate. Now, of course we communicate by signs. Those words that you're looking at on that page are symbols. they're they're signs, they're symbols, they represent a... When you look at the word chair, if I were to write the word chair up on the overhead, C-H-A-I-R, that's not a chair, is it? If I wrote it in hieroglyphics, it would look quite a bit different. If I wrote it in uh, the pictograph of Chinese or Japanese, it would look quite a bit different. Those symbols or those words, the alphabet... It's a symbol. It represents an external reality simply because we have chosen various languages to associate those symbols with a certain either concrete or abstract reality. So the word semino indicates communication. It's not just what what you'll find. Some people say, see, it's done by signs. It's done by symbols. Ah, so now we have to use a different kind of interpretation. I'll address that in a minute. Fourth, we see that that not only is it an unveiling, second, it's a showing, third, it is communication, but fourth, it's the word or message of God. We could even say it's the language of God. It is a legal testimony. That means it is designed to say some things, and other meanings are clearly excluded. You can't look at a legal testimony and say, hmm, well, that doesn't mean what they said it means. That must mean what? Something else, what I want it to mean. No, if somebody is on the witness stand and they give a testimony, they are, they, they are meaning to communicate certain specifics. And they are not communicating other things. And so we can understand precisely what they're saying, what, the, what their witness is, and we can act upon it. And then the fifth thing I want to point out is that in verse 3, we're told that this is a blessing if it is taught, heard, and heeded the The implication there is that it can be heated because it can be understood, and when it 's understood and heated it 's a blessing and the assumption is that this is designed to be a blessing, not something you have to guess at, not something you go home and and evaluate your navel and come up with some new idea of what this some of these uh, Uh, Symbols in Revelation mean, but there is clear, precise meaning. God is intending to communicate certain specific things. The Word of God is not something to be guessed at. It's not something that's hidden. It's not something mysterious or enigmatic. But it is something designed by an omnipotent and omniscient God to communicate precise specifics in a way that can be clearly understood by the recipient's so that they are accountable for the application of that message. That is all embedded here. So let's look at a doctrine of language. First point, in the beginning God spoke. Right? In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And in verse 3 of Genesis chapter 1, we read, Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Notice God said something specific. God did not say, "Let there be light, and there was darkness." Right? When He said, "Let there be light," He was excluding everything from coming into existence except from light. He didn't say God said, "Let there be light, and a fir tree came into existence." He didn't say God let there be light, and a dog popped up. God said, "Let there be light, and there was light." So. What's embedded here is the idea that God speaks and He means something and everything else is excluded from the meaning of that utterance. Second, it means that God is able... To, so from this we see that God is able to communicate a specific meaning. He is not communicating uh, something that is mysterious and something impossible. So the second point we see is from the very beginning, God has the ability to communicate and to be understood. God has the ability to communicate and to be understood. God created man in His image and likeness. We read down in Genesis one twenty six to twenty eight. As creatures in His image and likeness, we have been created with the divine, with a receiver. That is operating at the same wavelength as God so that we can hear and understand Him. Now in spiritual death, that gets distorted because of spiritual death, because of sin. But at regeneration, that can be, that wavelength is restored. And in the church age, we have the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand that transmission even more. So God is capable and able to communicate in such a way that His creatures understand Him. Third point is that underlying all of creation is a linguistic structure. Think about that. Underlying everything in creation is a linguistic structure. Everything is capable of being destru- described, and the creation of everything came as a result of a verbal utterance. So underlying everything is a linguistic structure. You can even express these things in mathematical formulas. I understand from those who are experts in mathematics, I'm not, that everything can be reduced to a mathematic formula. You can describe everything with a a math formula. In logic, you can describe all kinds of uh, reasoning through logical formulas. Sometimes this is reduced to what looks or appears to be mathematical formula uh, in symbolic logic. But the symbols represent a reality. If you just take a simple formula, two plus two equals four, what does that mean? Well, you know exactly what that means. It's designed to communicate. You have two things plus two other things. Now you have four things. Even though those numbers are symbols and they represent an abstract concept, they communicate something specifically. So even symbols communicate a literal reality. Remember that. Because when we get into Revelation, the problem you have in interpretation is people think, oh, you have symbols, so it must be allegorical. No, symbols stand for specific things, and that will exclude other meanings. So that leads to point number four. This counteracts the notion that meaning is fluid and that symbols are not literal. It counteracts the idea that meaning is fluid or that symbols are not literal. Meaning isn't fluid. You can't just come along and say, oh, I think it ought to mean this. There are clear rules of interpretation for anything so that, that if this is a legal document, you know that it has certain, certain meanings. And the Scripture is written in many ways as a legal document. The contracts or covenants, we call them, are, are like contracts. They're legal documents. And so the same system of interpretation that you would use to interpret your uh, your mortgage contract, or if you buy a car and you enter into a, uh, a finance agreement, that's a contract. If you have a credit card, you've signed a contract. And how you interpret the terms of payment on that credit card or financing the car or mortgage, th- those are contractual agreements. You can't just come in six months later and say, Well, the interest rates dropped three points. Now I'm going to start paying my mortgage at 5% instead of 7% or 8%. You can't do that. You can't come in and change the terms. You're bound by certain interpretive guidelines. The same thing is true about the Scripture. This gives us confidence and certainty in what the Word of God means. Fifth point, this counteracts the postmodern notion that all language is culturally conditioned and needs to be deconstructed. see this is what is being taught today and what what happens you, you you see it in law where people think that the like our former vice president that the Constitution is a living document, and therefore it can be interpreted uh, in different generations in different ways. Well, you can't do that you can't deconstruct. The Constitution, you have to interpret it in terms of what it meant when it was written by the Founding Fathers. Now, how do you do that? Well, you go back and you read things like the Federalist Papers and you read other documents written at that time by the men who signed and wrote the Constitution to understand what they meant and how they understood uh, what they wrote. That gives us the meaning. You don't come along and say, well, well these things were written by a bunch of uh, protestant uh, christian white men and so we have to realize there's all kinds of uh, 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 anti-feminine thinking going on here and they're they're have this patriarchal uh, neanderthal mentality and so you you have to uh, deconstruct the document and it really doesn't mean what they thought it meant because that was just reflecting their culture. We have to interpret it in terms of what what we want it to mean, and you know the, it just has the whole postmodern concept of language is that language is fluid. It's it's pure subjectivity, but if language is pure subjectivity, then you destroy the meaning of language. You can't have any kind of communication whatsoever. Uh, in fact, the 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 flaw in this is that in and, and post, postmodernism is described in, in books that they write on interpretation, on hermeneutics. But if you apply the principles they espouse to their writings, then they don't mean what they th- say they mean. See, they can't even live within the framework of their own assumptions because when they write something, they intend to communicate something and not just anything. And they intend to, for the reader to know precisely what they intend to communicate. But if you apply their principles to what they've written, then you can reinterpret what they've written because they're writing from a postmodern framework. And so if we exclude all of their uh, cultural uh, idiosyncrasies, then we can make what they say mean just the opposite of what it says. So it, 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 it's, it's completely idiotic. You know, once again, it's the kind of thing that, that uh, is so idiotic that only an intellectual would ever come up with it or believe it. It's amazing, just because people have high IQs and multiple degrees doesn't mean they're smart. The Bible describes a lot of people who have a high intelligence as fools. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So we have to be careful with the impact of some of these things. And what happens culturally is when you destroy the meaning of words, what are you left with? You're left with nothing but images Music, and that just feeds emotions. Think about what we, what we now see going on in political campaigns. A lot of images, you watch television, you see the advertising, you see these, these photo ops and these images, but in terms of verbal communication, there's very little content. Because you're going to sway the voter with what they see and the music that's being played, which is an appeal to the emotions and not to the content the same things happening in the church this is this is what you see in a lot of the contemporary worship services in a lot of churches today with the, pr- the way they're using praise and worship music the way they're using music and they use it it's just an appeal to emotion there's very little content but in some churches they'll have a we used to call them skits but they're get a little fancier now and they have little one act dramas in order to play out some some principle of application in the message then they'll have music and they sing a lot of a lot of uh, choruses over and over again sort of like a hindu mantra and it's all an appeal to the emotion and then the pastor gets up and he gives a little 15 minute emotional devotional and gets everybody feeling good and happy and everybody goes out feeling warmed and 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 filled but there's no content there. There's no content in our hymns any in the, in the I won't call them hymns, in the songs that they sing anymore. One of the things I learned this last week uh, related to uh, President Reagan was that he loved hymns. He planned the whole funeral service. He planned everything out and all of the music. And if you listen, if you have any knowledge whatsoever of Christianity, the music that was played was incredible fantastic hymns to hear the the um, air force band playing uh, out in uh, out in california at the uh, at the presidential library they played uh, tremendous hymns they played ferris lord jesus they played uh, a number of other hymns and it was great to sit there and recognize these hymns and and what value and meaning they were and i thought they're, they're, and, they, and they had such a such a level of, of sophistication to them. I thought, what would it be like if we were listening to this and all you had was praise and worship choruses? How trivial. How ridiculous. They weren't playing praise and worship choruses. They are playing hymns because hymns have significance. The music has value. It's good music. But the words have, have gr- expressed great thoughts because they're related to thinking not like this modern music. So what we see here is an emphasis on language. Uh, Point number five was that this counteracts the postmodern notion that language is culturally conditioned and needs to be uh, deconstructed. Point number six, if God literally speaks in Genesis 1 and his words produce creation, then that provides a framework for meaning. Now, words become attacked. What's the first attack? Genesis chapter 2. Did God, Satan, I mean, Genesis 3, Satan comes along in Genesis 3, 1. says, did God really say, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll die? See, he's, he's attacking meaning all of a sudden. See, this is how Satan and Satan's world attacks the truth of Scripture, is to question its meaning. So once again, we see that this whole arena of postmodern hermeneutics, but that's not that's only the latest approach. The earliest occurred in the third century and fourth century AD with the rise of allegorical interpretation, where the literal meaning was irrelevant. It was a hidden spiritual meaning behind the text that was important. So scripture shows that there's a there's an attack on meaning from Genesis three one on. That's point number seven. Point number eight, we realize from Old Testament prophecies that they are to be understood literally. Jesus was born literally in Bethlehem. He was crucified. The prophecies were written at a time when crucifixion wasn't in existence, but He was literally crucified. He was in the grave for three days, three nights, not a week, not one day, even though the number three may have some symbolic significance, It has a literal reality. That's what we'll see in Revelation. Even though there's a lot of things said with numbers, the numbers are to be taken literally, even though they may also have some symbolic significance. So this leads to the conclusion, point nine, that when God speaks, He is able to do so in a way that we can understand and we're accountable for that. That is the urgency of the command, for the time is near. Now, we'll begin next time with just a brief summary of the doctrine of interpretation, understanding how we are to interpret Scripture and the meaning of a literal, grammatical, historical interpretation. But the warning here is that we can understand it, we're to hear it, we're to concentrate. Why? Because the time is near. Something is going to happen. Eventually, there will be an evaluation. We need to be prepared For that evaluation. That's the thrust for the believer in the first or in the second and third chapter, for the unbeliever in the rest of the book, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word uh, this morning, to be challenged by these things, to come to a greater appreciation of how you have disclosed yourself to us, how you have unveiled your plan and purposes to us, that we can understand these things and that we are held accountable for what you have revealed to us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you have to do is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. It's not a matter of what you do or what you don't do. It's not a matter of the sins you've committed it's not a matter of what religious uh exercises you've been involved in it's simply a matter of trust reliance believing that jesus christ died on the cross and paid the penalty for your sins at that instant you are born again you receive eternal life and that can never be taken from you father we thank you for, for what we have heard we pray that we would be like those it's addressed to, that we would be blessed because we have heard and because we heed or keep the words of this prophecy for the time is near. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.